Take my heart, O Lord, and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. They don't write them like that anymore, do they? That is powerful. I want to thank our music ministry for bringing everything together here on this on this beautiful kickoff Sunday. You may not know this, but you need to keep our music minister, Tom Dooling, in your prayers because this past week he was moving his daughter Leah into college and broke his ankle. And so, yeah, he's, he's having surgery next week. And so all this preparation took place under, the, under Tom's advanced planning and leadership, under the leadership of Jay Ha, under the, the, the leadership of our choir and our whole music department. Let's show them our appreciation again. For... It, is, it is such a joy to be in God's house, particularly on this Resurrection Sunday, on this, on this uh, kickoff Sunday, because today... We are gathered to begin a new church year. Now, there has been lots of stuff going on during the summer. As you saw the video, all of our mission trips, we've had lots of special events. There's been a lot going on, but the kickoff Sunday is that Sunday when we really begin our new program and ministry year. It's a Sunday about new programs, new classes, new ministries, about new, about new, uh, new opportunities, and really, it's a Sunday about new life. We know that God is with us every Sunday of the year, that he's been with us all, su- uh, all, all summer. But now we are gathering again to remember that God brings us new and fresh life every day. And so with that, I'm also going to mention that today we're beginning a new study, a new sermon series in worship. And so I want to bring that to your attention And I want to begin this new sermon series with an interesting letter, something I found uh, a while back, but I think it's really fascinating. On November 4th, 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King rose to the pulpit of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. We always think about Dr. King as, as a great activist, as a great social leader, but we have to remember that at his core, he was a preacher. He was a local pastor before any of that. And as he came up to the pulpit of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, he took a really gutsy risk. And with all the theatrical flair that he could muster, he said this, I would like to share with you an imaginary letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. An imaginary letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so with tongue in cheek, he began to read. From Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, for many years I have longed to be able to come to see you. I've heard so much of you and of what you are doing, America, as I look at you from afar. You have made tremendous strides in the area of scientific and technological development, but it seems to me that your moral progress lags behind your scientific progress. You've allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. You have allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. I am impelled to write you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to live as Christians in the midst of an unchristian world. American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. Now, Martin Luther King's letter was an intentional work of fiction. But what if the Apostle Paul had written a letter to American Christians? If he had, I think it would have have looked and sounded a lot like the letter of 1 Corinthians. Today we are beginning a new study on 1 Corinthians. And I want to make the case, as many others have before me, that 1 Corinthians is the most contemporary book in the New Testament, if not the entire Bible. The issues and themes of 1 Corinthians, love and sex and faith and unity and idolatry, are as relevant in the 21st century in America as they were to Corinthian Christians in the first century. My New Testament professor, Dr. Paul Ochtemeyer, once said that even though it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. It is as though the Apostle Paul was reading our headlines, or worse, he was reading our mail. Their problems and their struggles seem a lot like ours. And hey, if the shoe fits, wear it. So we're going to begin our study at the end of the book, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Because in these verses, Paul ends with the beginning. Paul declares the gospel as the basis for all that he has written and all that he teaches in the opening chapters of the letter. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. The title of this series is The Gospel Solution. In the weeks to come, we are going to talk about some of the problems, some of the questions that the early church had to deal with. These were questions about morality, about sexuality, about behavior, about food and culture, about questions, uh, questions about community and love and leadership, about worship and idols and life and death. But today, I want to introduce this letter by introducing the summary question and the big problem at the root of all the other questions addressed in 1 Corinthians. And the big problem is this. 
How can you bet your life on Jesus and live his way when everyone around you thinks that you are crazy for believing what you believe? How can you bet your life on Jesus and live his way when everyone around you thinks that you are crazy for believing what you believe? When Paul wrote to the, Corinthian, to the Christians in, in Corinth, the church was young and the believers were still trying to figure out what it meant to follow Christ in a pagan world. And these early Christians were being challenged on two fronts. Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks, demand, uh, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So on the one hand, they were being challenged by the pagan Greeks. Now don't make the mistake of thinking that that means they were ignorant or primitive. Corinth was an intellectually sophisticated city. It was a crossroads where the great Athenian philosophies of Socrates and Plato mingled with the Persian mysticism of Zoroaster and the wisdom of Egypt intertwined with the, mag uh, the, with the pragmatism of Rome. But the Greeks could not get their heads around this new religion, Christianity. It didn't make any sense. It was founded by a Palestinian Jew from a backwater town in a backwater province. His followers claimed that he did miracles, but mostly he was just a wandering teacher who got in trouble with the Romans and was ignominiously crucified. And you know what? That happened to people all the time. In other words, in their eyes, Jesus was a loser. They didn't understand why you would build a religion around somebody like that. Why do you worship someone that the Romans killed in the most humiliating, grotesque way possible? And why would you give up your family, your wealth, your power, your friends, and even your safety to say, I want to be just like that guy? Why would you do it? On the other hand, they were being challenged by the Jews. Now, one would think that since Jesus was a Jew and the first Christians were all Jews and the apostles were all Jews, that the Jews would embrace Christianity. But just as the Jewish authorities of Jerusalem had considered Jesus a threat to the purity of Judaism and to their peace and safety, so did the Jewish leaders of Corinth. They were looking for and waiting for the Messiah, but they knew Jesus was not him. They were looking for an heir to King David who would free them from the Romans and restore the glory of Israel. But how could Jesus be the Messiah? Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't beat the Romans. He was crucified by the Romans. They were looking for a conqueror, not a babe in a manger or a carpenter from Nazareth. And so they saw these early Christians as a group of heretics trying to hijack their religion by telling people that Jesus was the Son of God, bringing unclean foreigners and unclean customs into the synagogue. These Jesus followers were proclaiming a false Messiah. They were proclaiming a false life. They were misrepresenting God. And the leaders of the Corinthian synagogue even tried to have Paul arrested. We see that in Acts chapter 18. And so the Jews branded the first Christians as heretics and the Greeks considered them idiots. Now, to step back for a moment, we should be able to relate to this problem. 
I mean, right now, our culture holds Christianity in suspicion, if not outright contempt. Back right, back then, Christians were accused of following the ways of someone who was either a dead fool or a dead heretic. But now, those accusations might sound something like this. How can you take seriously a book that is 2,000 years out of touch? How can a person take the Bible seriously? Miracles, angels, morality, and all that in an age of science. How can you insist on believing when your friends, when your neighbors, your coworkers, your customers, your clients, even your family doesn't believe what you believe or live the way you live? How can you support such a corrosive, politically incorrect, barbaric, ugly, mean, homophobic, transphobic, racist, paternalistic, triggering, divisive, antiquated religion based on an irrelevant, irrelevant legend about a man that has been dead for 2,000 years? How can you continue to live as a Christian when a college professor, a professor published in the religion section of last Sunday's San Antonio Express News, an article that declares that the decline of religion in America is actually good for our democracy. I mean, do you ever feel like people think you're crazy for believing what you believe? Do you ever feel like you might be crazy for believing what you believe? To the Jews... The death of Jesus made him a fraud. And to the pagans, it made him a fool. So what do you do, what do you say when your Greek friends call you a fool and your Jewish friends call you a fraud? When they ask you, how can you give your life to a dead man? How can you base your opinions, your business relationships, your identity, your morality on something like that? How do you answer? How do you answer your friends? When they ask you, Paul's answer was actually very simple. And it was as true now as it was then. He said, we don't follow a dead man. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. We follow a resurrected, living Savior who walked out of the tomb so that we could walk in newness of life. Paul's reason for following Jesus is the core fact of the Christian faith, the good news of the resurrection. And at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul gives us the core message of the Christian faith. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the gospel, Paul says, the gospel is both Christ's death on the cross and the resurrection. And that's so important because when you talk about faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot separate the cross from the resurrection or the resurrection from the cross. Paul said that this is of first importance. This is the most important thing. The problem with the pagans and the Jews is that they only saw the cross 
the death of Jesus. They missed the second part. The cross and the resurrection go together. And that's the only way that Christianity makes sense. Think of it this way. A surgeon friend of mine once said that surgery is destruction, but it is destruction for the sake of healing. In the hands of the Romans, crucifixion was a barbaric, terrifying, brutal tool for execution, intimidation, fear, and death. But in the hands of God, the mutilation of the cross became surgery on the human soul. He cut out our sinful, broken, dead heart and transplanted the heart of Jesus. So now, whenever the Lord looks on us, he sees the heart and the sacrifice of his beloved son. Of course, it's only a successful surgery if the, if the patient lives, if he wakes up. Yeah, you all know Dr. Tripp Stewart. I was asking him about this the other night. I was asking him about some things about anesthesia, and he says, you know, I don't just get paid to put people to sleep. They always want to wake up too. And that's true, but it's interesting that there's a, there's a fascinating connection. The word for resurrection in Greek is anastasis, and it sounds a lot like anesthesia. The idea here is that on Easter morning, God brought the patient back to life. The resurrection only makes sense, excuse me, the cross only makes sense in the light of the resurrection, just like healing makes sense of surgery. But for all of their sophisticated philosophical maturity, the Greeks failed to see God working through the cross. And for all their learning and study of Scripture, the Jews didn't recognize God's Messiah when he came. And the reason that neither group got it was because they only saw the death and not the life. Neither the Jewish authorities nor the Greek critics of Christianity understood the resurrection. It just didn't fit their understanding of how the world works. People don't just rise from the dead. That's impossible, said the critics. And so, in chapter 15, Paul said, God made it happen and here's your proof. Over 500 eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. Thousands more whose lives have been changed, including people you know. And all of this happened in accordance with the scriptures, all foretold in prophecy, in references too numerous to mention. God's word said that he would send a Messiah like this, and he kept his promise. Jesus said it would happen this way, and it did. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The critics of Jesus then had left the real God out of the equation, just like they do now. And when you take God out of the equation, you have removed the single most important factor in the universe, but not just in the universe, in our lives. Even Paul conceded that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and, our faith, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. He's saying, you know what, they're right. All by itself, the cross is repugnant. 
There is no wisdom and no truth in pledging your life to to serve the memory of a dead heretic. If that is all that Jesus was, then we're as foolish and fraudulent as they say. On top of that, if Christ is not raised, then we are the most pathetic people on earth. If the resurrection is not true, then Jesus was a fraud and we are all fools. But the resurrection is true. Christ has been raised. This really happened. As Paul said, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Well, here is the sign demanded by the Jews and the inescapable logic for the Greeks. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then he is who he said he is. He is the son of God. And if God is real, then faith is not foolish. So bring it on. Show me your dead gods and I'll show you the living savior. Pitch your jargon, pitch your propaganda, your advertising mumbo jumbo, and I'll show you the truth. Tell me your empty promises and I'll show you the empty tomb. At this point, you may be saying, well, that all sounds very interesting. What does any of that have to do with me? The point is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most powerful fact that the world has ever known. It matters. Because if Jesus was killed and God resurrected him from the dead, then everything we think we know about the world has changed. If the resurrection is true, it means that if God, it means that God is real and that everything in the, that the Bible says about him is true. It means that heaven is real, that hell is real, that our sin is real and God's judgment is real. It changes everything our secular world thinks it knows about the universe, about right and wrong, about humanity, about life and death. But it also means that everything that Jesus said is true. It means that God is in control and that he loves us and that every promise he made, he will keep. It means that everything the Bible says about you and me and us, about our identity is true. That yes, we are sinners, but yes, we are made in the image of God. And it means that everything that this world, even death, can take away, God can give back. Everything that guilt and pain can cripple, everything that sin can pollute, everything that cancer and disease can steal, everything that violence and war can destroy, everything that lies can undermine, and everything that poverty can take away, God can give back. And it also means that his way is the best way to live and the only way to live forever. The Greeks thought following Jesus was ridiculous and the Jews thought it was blasphemous. But the early Christians bet their lives on Jesus because they knew that if the real God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he has the power to change our lives and to change the world now and forever. We believe because we know that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And there was a time when the evidence of the resurrection itself was enough to prove the reasonableness 
of following Jesus Christ. But now we're in a situation where people want something more. They can't see the cross and the empty tomb. And so they need to see the healing and the transformation and the truth of the gospel through the evidence of our lives. Nowadays, people are not going to believe that God is real, that God loves them, that he's relevant, or that he has the power to make a difference in their lives until they see us betting our lives on the love of the cross and the power of the resurrection. It's kind of like the old playground dare. Do you want me to bet your life? Uh, do you want me to bet my life on Jesus and follow him? Great, you first. You first. Unless they see the gospel as the most important factor in our lives, in the way we love, in the way we work, in the way we serve, they're never going to believe that it's the most important factor in history. Our greatest challenge is not to live in defiance of the world around us, but rather in subversion of a world that is taking God out of the equation. To live humbly, modestly, kindly, soberly, sacrificially, morally, compassionately, with persistence, even in a world that says that it is crazy and even antisocial to follow Jesus. They are never going to believe that the good news of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is true, or that it can make a difference in their lives until they see it making a difference in ours. So this is not just historical, this is personal. You know anybody whose life is falling apart because they've taken the real God out of the equation, their relationships, their work, their, their hope? When God is part of the equation, miracles can happen. God took the cross, the most horrifying symbol of death that history has ever known, and through the resurrection, he turned that symbol of death into the most powerful symbol of hope that man has ever seen. He can take the hardest, ugliest, most tragic part of our lives and turn them into miracles because of the resurrection. And when we finally understand that, we will see that trusting God is the most important thing that we can do. So when the world demands to know, how can you believe what you believe and live the way you live? We say that we live what we believe, what we believe, excuse me, we believe what we believe and we live the way we live because God is real and the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and the resurrection proves it and I'm betting my life on it. Let us pray. Oh Lord, today we know that we are challenged to believe. We know that there are so many others who would look for alternate ways to find truth, to live, to, to know hope. But we turn to you because we know that because of the resurrection, you've proven that following Jesus is neither foolishness nor fraud. So Lord, help us to have confidence. Confidence that comes from the love of the cross and the power of the empty tomb. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.